0: When you ask people what edge compute is, you get a range of answers, cloud compute and DevOps with devices and sensors, with semiconductors outside the data center, including connectivity, AI, and a security strategy. It's a stew of technologies that's powering our vehicles, our buildings, our factories, and more. It's also filled with fascinating people that are passionate about their tech, their story, and their world. I'm your host, Pete Bernard, and the Edge Celsius Show makes sense of what edge compute is, who's doing it, and how it can transform your business and you.
1: Oh, so you like listening to podcasts, huh? Well, so do a lot of people. As a matter of fact, millions of listeners are tuning into podcasts every week, and your next customer could be one of them. Did you know that podcast advertising is one of the most effective ways to advertise your product or service? And it's really easy to get started. Just go to podbean.com slash brands. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot slash brands to start boosting your business with podcast advertising today.
2: Hey, Josh Robert here from Making Bank. Just wanted to reach out today on today's episode. If you have a business and you're trying to grow, but maybe it's just stalled on you, maybe you're trying to really figure out, hey, how can I set myself apart from other companies out there? Today's guest is going to drive and give you a ton of amazing insights. Coming from an agricultural background, he's figured out how to utilize data to enhance and make his decisions in his business, as also as transparency and authenticity as well. So I want you guys to check out today's episode with Jeff Smith. He's going to drop some amazing insights and in what you can do and then how this applies to your business today. So make sure you guys really share this episode, send it to friends, like, send some comments below. The guests love it when people comment, then they can come back and uh, answer those questions that you guys are leaving. So like, share this episode if you if you enjoyed it today and just really appreciate you being a Making Bank listener. His company was founded to extend the legacy of the family cattle ranch that was homesteaded at this location in the early 1900s. The ranch has been in continuous operation since 1913 and being born through the fifth generation of family ranchers. Kara, Jeff's wife, is an, has an inborn love and passion for the cattle industry. Their story is super authentic what they do, what, how they raise their beef, how they connect with agriculture, their environment, and being able to produce an amazing product for you. So I'm excited to dive in today with Jeff Smith from Colorado Craft Beef. Hey, Josh, thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. For sure. Uh, So give us a little bit of your background. I know we were talking a little bit offline. You said, you know, you come from a private equity side of things and you got a cattle ranch and kind of give us this whole perspective and, you know, kind of connect the dots a little bit.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, you know, what's interesting when I talk to leadership groups or if I talk to even, you know, student groups, everybody's like, well, how did it work out? And I said, well, if you try to connect the dots, you end up with this weird, almost calligraphy like storyboard of randomness that somehow tied into this situation I'm in today. You know, I actually grew up in Eastern Oregon. So I'm a West Coast guy. I went to school at Colorado State University, have a degree in agricultural business with minors in finance and accounting. So I'm a bona fide money dork and uh, wear wear that badge proudly because there's a lot of people that want to do something for the passion of it and then not really understand if they're profitable. Mm, (laughs) And especially agriculture is notorious for that. People do it for the tradition and the lifestyle. And next thing they know, they look around and they have to sell the farm to cover the bank. And that's, it's a horrible thing, but that is the nature of the business. And there's, we could do two hours just on the economics of ag. But if you start to consider all of that, uh, you know, my background with a degree in business, a degree in finance and a degree in ag, I went to work for a big company called Cargill. I was an operations manager for them. Uh, I then got into heavy construction where I was more general management, operations management of multiple crews doing like heavy highway construction. And then I got into corporate sales because a good gentleman by the name of Dr. Jeff McGee, who is a human capital expert out of Vegas, told me that nothing happens in business until a sale is made and <laughs> you need to have a sales piece on your resume to go C-suite. And I worked for a company out of Des Moines, Iowa called the Brathy Company. And I sold to people like Coors and Land Lakes. And I sold grain cleaning equipment and robotics and large construction projects where you had to translate between engineers, safety guys, production managers, high-level C-suite people at Coors Orlando Lakes, and make them all see the greater vision. So that translation of different business languages became became kind of paramount to what I do. Uh, That led me to private equity, where I was the weird finance guy that also understood what happened on a cattle ranch, what happened on a feed yard, what happened at a farm, you know, not just from, oh, we kind of raise hay and then sell it, but (laughs) you know what kind of soil type do you have? What are your water rights? All those very integral variables that are exceptionally hard to quantify in a financial model if you don't understand the process. Because if you're Sean Whalen and you make 10,000 t-shirts, it's a pretty simple model. I don't want to degrade the model. It's exceptionally complex at that level. But when you're also working in the beef space with weather variables and production variables and feed calculations and animal yield calculations using the whole animal, because, you know, one steer doesn't provide all the ribeyes you want. There's a finite amount of multiple cuts on every animal. Mm, And if you can't utilize all of those from a production standpoint, your model becomes untenable financially. And so when I take my career and I kind of put it in this mind mindset and frame of where we are today, you know, you become a logistics manager, a manufacturing manager, a sales manager, a financial manager, and all the different things in agriculture that in the production side of things are lost because somebody's too busy producing to understand the other side of the sales quotient that needs to drive their business. And that led us to starting Colorado Craft Beef.
2: You know, and what you're saying too is, you know, fight you know, having the passion, but it does doesn't always equal out to being able to run and operate a business and drive revenue and everything. I mean, I even remember growing up as a kid, we had farms all around us and cattle and things like that. And it's, you know, the, the old time, you know, farmer rancher, and they've had it through the family and, and growing and, uh, growing the business and everything, but it kind of always, most of them always kind of stagnated or stayed at a certain level. They didn't go beyond that. And, you know, from what you're saying, and then just even understanding, I know just business in general is, you know, they understood a certain pieces and parts of it, but not the, you know, the additional business end that they needed to, you know, continue to grow with that and everything.
1: Yeah. And if you take like the cotton industry, for instance, you know, we're both wearing cotton hoodies. Right. Most of the people that are involved in the cotton industry, you're so locked into one vertical of the production space where you're at. You know, say you're in, you know, Dumas, Texas, and you're a cotton farmer. You may have some corn fields. But for the most part, you're probably invested in the local cotton gin. A cotton picker is literally a million dollars. So by the time you get all the assets in place to be an air quotes cotton producer, you are so hamstrung in that one vertical, you don't get a lot of the mobility that you should have as a direct business. And you get so asset heavy on one side if that market takes a crash or you have a crop failure or somebody in the other part of the world has a great crop and it drives your price down, you really suffer the consequences. And when you talk about just being a cotton producer, that's, that's one part of it, but they produce cotton all over the world. Right. And so now you have to export because we don't have a lot of textile factories in the U S that raw cotton has to be shipped off to be made into yarn and different things. So you have to see the fourth, fifth level effects of all these different commodity chains and that's why we started Colorado Craft Beef. Uh, we were my wife and I were actually standing in the barn with my father-in-law, who is fourth generation. He's ran the ranch commercially for the family since 1976. Hmm. He is 66 years old. The man has a six-pack, and it, he's he's a machine. But we talked to him about business succession, and and I asked him as a business nerd, I said, "Hey, can we continue on with the model you've got?" And he said, "No." That's a bit of a gut check moment. You know, the, yeah. this year the ranch is 110 years old. So if you think about the legacy piece, you know, Eddie, you're going to take this thing over, but I don't know how you're going to run it. That's a bit of a shock. Hmm. And when you start thinking of your return on capital investment in the vertical of cattle that my father in law runs in, you know, your rookie is six to 8%, maybe. Wow. It's not, it's not great. So yeah. you double comma checks out there carrying inventory that could get struck by lightning or hit by a fire or any number of things, or just simply disappear. I mean, they could cattle wander off sometimes. It's not ideal. Um, and we started looking at that. And luckily my wife and I come from a corporate sales, corporate marketing, a real business background. And we said, man, six to 8% rookie is just not acceptable. That's a lot of risk for our family. You know, we've got two young girls, what can we do? Where can we leverage our skill sets? Right. And direct to consumers. is what we came up with, which is not a new idea. There's a lot of people doing it, but we felt like we were better positioned geographically uh, with some of our industry knowledge. My wife actually has a master's degree in cattle nutrition. So where I'm a bonafide money nerd, I do affectionately refer to her as my cow nerd. Uh, she has not yet stabbed me in my sleep for that. Uh, I, think, <laughs> I think it's now accepted, but we'll see. Right. And so we started Colorado Craft Beef in 2017. We started shipping beef in 2018, but we did it very deliberately. Uh, We did a ton of focus groups. We had a really great website constructed before we ever launched because there's a lot of people in our direct-to-consumer space that kind of operate in more of a cottage industries, hobby farm type space, and we wanted to grow past that. So we basically paid the upfront charge to... Make those investments and be ready to go direct to consumer at a big scale, and uh, you know, to date we've shipped to all 50 states. We ship to Hawaii regularly. We don't ship to Alaska very much. Uh, we've got people in Maine and Florida and Washington and California, and believe it or not, we ship a lot of beef to Texas. Um, we found some really interesting marketing niches where we work within, like the carnivore community and the keto community. But a lot of that's been done by being mobile within our business thought and not being constrained in our delivery. And that's really allowed us to flourish. And that's one of the things that I think sets us apart from the rest of the chain is we make good beef. We know the whole story behind it, but we have a level of authenticity because we physically do the work. Like actually this afternoon, I have to go pick up a new front end loader and bring it back to our feed yard because we had a fire three weeks ago that burned down about a quarter million dollars worth of machinery and we're recovering from that and getting things in place but you know we literally we being my wife and i were shipping cattle yesterday and loading boxes last week and there's a there's a connection to the business that's pretty hard to replicate for some people and we just live within it and operate within it and uh, we're growing like crazy
2: that's awesome there's a couple points too you mentioned too i want to circle back in a minute but What sets you guys apart? Um, Obviously, you mentioned that there was other companies out there. I've bought uh, beef from you know a handful of different ones over the years, and you know some of them you find out like you're buying, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh wait, this beef is coming from Austria, or you know stuff like that, or other ones that they're an aggregator, so they work with like a dozen different farms, you know, and, and sell like that way. I mean, from what it looks like to me, you know, you guys have is, I mean. You guys raise it process and everything right out the door is that
1: that's close to accurate so okay. the one thing we don't have uh we do not have a mother cow herd okay our ranch isn't set up for that and that's uh just something we have to understand so we have four or five ranches that we work with directly uh we dictate health protocols on young calves and then we take the calves on their wheat and then we take them from that through the end of the growing process no, 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 no. totally totally controlled by us Um, I mean, we're processing. We harvested 15 head this week. And I can tell you the ranch that came from the day we bought them and where they went their whole life. So we've connected that part of the puzzle, but we don't own the mother cows. But we do help our our cow-calf producers with genetic data, with yield data to help them make business decisions to make their cattle more efficient. And then when we go to processing uh, for retail, it has to be USDA inspected. Uh, So there's actually buddy of mine that owns a local usda processing facility he's done all of our processing from day one and we have no intent to change that he's been a meat nerd since i was i was in college with him and uh he just does a great job so that's awesome and then everything from the processing plant actually comes into the building i'm sitting in right now we built this on the ranch the walk-in freezer is about 40 feet straight ahead of me through two walls and it all ships off the ranch every monday
2: and then, so with that, then you guys have that whole transparency from the time you get them all the way through till shipment and everything. And that's the authenticity part that it looks like you guys are talking about on your website.
1: Yep. And we know where all the feed comes from and we know the rations they have. I mean, we, we operate the feed yard that finishes our cattle. So we do a grain finished uh, cattle group and uh, because that's what we're set up for in this region, um, grass finishing, Uh, Contrary to some of the propaganda out there, (laughs) grass finishing has a higher carbon footprint. It's not as universal. It's not as good for the environment where we live because we don't get rain like
2: that. Uh, Uh, Right.
1: If you're on the East Coast and you get 40 inches of rain, heck yeah, you can grass finish. We get 11 inches of rain annually here. So we're on grass all summer. It's green. It's beautiful. It's our favorite time of year because you're horseback almost every day. And then when the grass goes dormant, uh, we live in the sandhills. We have to pull cattle off pasture or we're going we're gonna to detonate those pastures. We can't do that. So it's uh, one of the things I've described to people that are not uh, exceptionally astute on the ag side. Agriculture isn't even microeconomies; It's micro microeconomies. because I mean, five miles from us, we could have three inches of rain and those guys will have five or we'll have one and they'll have nothing and it's literally different sides of the ranch have to be managed differently. It's not wow. even like, oh, this county is different. It's like, no, like across the road might not have gotten as much rain. So everything is very tightly managed and we have to do it that way.
2: Yeah, that's interesting too. I mean, just with the way that you sit the way the ranch is separated and the and the you know, amount of rain that they get and then the adjustments that you have to make to <laughs> be able to continue to make sure you have the right amount of you know, grass and food and things like that out there. So, as you mentioned early on, um, initially when you guys had talked about it, you guys are, you know, at 6 to 8% margins. What have you guys been able to then move that now to with the direct-to-consumer model and then be able to, uh, you know, increase the overall business profitability and everything?
1: Yep. So the good news is what we've been able to do is keep the profit margins that other sectors of the chain get in the commercial space. So if you take a typical rancher like my father-in-law, he sells cattle to feed yards, feed yards sell the cattle to the processor, and then the processor, JBS, Tyson, whoever it is, they sell the meat. Okay. And goes to a wholesaler, and then the wholesaler sells to a retailer, and then the retailer sells. And everywhere along that chain, there's a percentage taken. So what we've been able to do is actually keep our pricing about the same for the end product, but we retain all those margins in-house. So at the end of the day, what happens is when my father-in-law will describe that in a yearling operation, you can hope for a hundred dollars in animal return for us taking cattle to finish, putting them in a box, taking the risk of shipping them, et cetera, depending on the economics of certain animals and certain pens, because it changes all the time, you know, we can be six to 10 X more than a pro- a typical producer. Because mm. we've taken all the rest of that market risk. Right. So if you take your Roki and you've went for, you know, we're, we're shooting for a 30% margin on our, on our retail, yeah. which people will take all day long. But then you also have to calculate in oh corn prices went up. Uh, you had a storm. So your cattle didn't produce or didn't, uh, didn't yield as well because the weather impacted on like, there's a lot of pluses and minuses throughout the variable supply chain until you get things in a box.
2: And that's interesting too, is I mean the you know the different you know variability that you have, you know, with that as you know raising them, you know, if if certain things happen, you know, growth slows down you know, or you know things like that. How do you guys account for that and then, you know, to be able to position yourselves uh, so you stay ahead. Yep, so
1: the most interesting economic study I've ever done is this company. Because when we first started, of course, we were feeding smaller numbers we were producing less, so our variability was exceptionally more volatile. Mm. You You would watch it animal to animal. And now we're to the point that we're harvesting, you know, double digits worth of animals a month. And that law of averages has kind of smoothed that curve out. So we get a lot more data points in a shorter amount of time, which gives us an opportunity to really get a scale of economy capture. So it's interesting, uh, you know, 2019 was the last time we raised our beef prices. We haven't adjusted our beef prices in three three or four years. Wow. Even okay. though cattle prices and feed prices are the highest they've been since we started the company. Right. And it was all strictly based on scale of economy gain. So that scalability piece made it incredible from just a data analytics standpoint, where we're able to take unitized measurements, make more per animal, And not have to adjust our end pricing because we're able to, uh, for instance, I mentioned the walk-in freezer. Well, if you have to keep cattle on feed a little longer until you have freezer space, et cetera, et cetera, Uh they may, they'll have additional cost. Maybe they don't gain any weight. So now you've just put more cost on an animal that didn't yield any more poundage. So you can harvest when 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 it is biologically optimal. Right. You have the best cost-benefit ratio. So now we have storage. We have an ability to control those things. So just as we've gotten bigger and we've gotten more operational flexibility, it's allowed us to capture that scale of economy in a way that really uh, you could read about in textbooks, but seeing it in practice has been fantastic.
2: No, I I think that's huge too. It's interesting how you guys are taking data to utilize to actually then help you guys make the decisions where a lot of businesses it's kind of flying on the whim you're like oh okay we're just going to do this today and this today and and, you know and then they wonder why at the end of the year their margins may be smaller they're not growing as you know optimally as they should and even like i just got back from houston i was down with my boys they were testing for um formula four and so they were driving formula four cars and everything and when they got done with every time practice races and things like that they would download the data from the system and then go back and analyze and be like man you guys need to be at Twelve hundred pounds of brake pressure here when you're only at eight hundred, and you know stay you know on the throttle here or off here. And so by the three or four days after we were completed, they have got they had reduced their lap times by over twenty seconds, and you know and things like that. So being able to take that data is super important, and how you guys have been able to utilize it to then grow the business and then manage the whole process.
1: Yeah, one of the things I've talked about on a few different podcasts is. And I, I really preach this to my agricultural brothers and sisters because I love them, but sometimes they drive me crazy. Is the hardest person to be honest with yourself or to be honest with is yourself. Mm, yeah. I mean, in agriculture, I mean, I do deals. I just, we just bought some cattle yesterday, you know, a, a six figure check with a handshake. No big deal. It's just right. how it goes. You know, you're expected to have that level of integrity. But in ag, the hardest thing for people to do is look in the mirror and be honest with that guy. Because you have an idea, you have a mindset, you have a model, you wanted to make work. And if you aren't taking that data and applying it, you're hamstringing yourself. You know, maybe you're hurting the company. Maybe you're affecting your ability to employ other people and provide for other people in the community. Or, you know, you're lying to yourself and maybe you're hurting your family finances because you're not being honest with yourself. Hmm. You know, that that open-minded ability to look in the mirror and say, man, I really got to figure this out. Uh, leads me to, I'll audit our shipping prices, you know, three or four times a year. I audit our incoming cattle yields all the time, not to prove myself right, but to hope I'm wrong so that I can catch it before it kicks me in the teeth. And that level of humility is something that I love agricultural people because they're fiercely independent. And sometimes they drive me crazy because they are fiercely independent. (laughs) And, you know, it's a mindset shift that I think a lot of people need to have, whether it's just in ag or elsewhere. And that's something that's helped us to be a little more mobile, a little more nimble, and a little more uh, transparent with people as we
0: talk to them.
2: Yeah. And I mean, I think being able to, you know, have the data then, like you said, be mobile and nimble to make those adjustments based on, you know, what you're seeing is huge. I know we only got a few minutes left. What, um, What's something like, oh man, I really want to make sure I share this today or get this out there or something. You're like, oh, I haven't ever shared this before on a show, but I want to get it out because I think it's super important for people to learn. Sure. You know, the, one of the things I've really started sharing, I've shared on
1: a couple of podcasts recently, Will Harris was recently on Joe Rogan's podcast and Will Harris owns White Oak Pastures, a regenerative farm in Georgia. And they really talked a lot about being regenerative. And and I do appreciate what they're doing. Will had a great interview with Joe. What I would say, though, is there's this term regenerative ag that everybody is just shouting from the rooftops. The problem with that term for me is if you don't call yourself regenerative, it's almost inferred that you are degenerative. And I think that is just crap. (laughs) And there's a lot of people that assign those value systems to something they truly don't know. You know, the food in the grocery store is healthy. It's safe. Uh, there are things we can do with Colorado craft beef that are different than some of the commercial producers. But if you're buying the super expensive, exceptionally well-logoed product in the grocery store, you're paying for a lot of labeling. And Will Harris spent a lot of time talking about greenwashing where people will use terms from a marketing standpoint to sell more food, more of this, more whatever. And that's the term they're using in agriculture now is greenwashing. You're trying to cover this thing with the right amount of logos to make everybody feel super great about buying it. When if you actually pull the curtain back, it's maybe not what you intended. So to the producers or to the consumers out there, cause you know, once in your life, you're going to need a lawyer. Once in your life, you're going to need a banker. Three times a day, you need a farmer understand that the vast majority of the agricultural community is doing the very best with the resources they have. And what I do at my ranch is different than what my neighbors do because we're in different spots, even though it's literally just over the horizon. And if you want to support a different food system and you want to support different things and you want to be informed, go do that and vote with your dollar because that is what's going to change this system. Uh, If you want to, promote grass finished go nuts but understand we cannot do that if you want to promote organic go nuts but understand that organic chemicals that are approved for use on organic farming are some of the nastiest chemicals out there so let's get past the label let's really dig into it and make informed decisions and if you really want to know there's probably a farmer or rancher in your area that'll help talk to you
2: Hmm. yeah i think that's that's super interesting especially the part about uh, the additional marketing. I mean, I've seen it just, you know, you're going into whole foods or, you know, sprouts or places like that. And you see the multiple logos on the food products. And, you know, I've then like I guess I bought direct a farm. And I mean, we have a farm right down here in Ohio. And actually it was kind of interesting when I went to, we were buying beef from him and stuff and we were talking and, you know, it's like, he's like, we do everything, you know, organic. We don't even use chemicals, you know, sure. like certain things like that. He goes, but we're not paying for that certification. <laughs> and he goes, at the level we're at, it's crazy expensive.
1: <laughs> yeah, it for us to pay for any certification, I mean, you're talking five grand for every label claim. Right. And at that point, like our cost of production is already a little higher because we are at a smaller scale. And if you find that package of whatever it is, meat especially, and it's got all these label claims, understand the amount of money that had to go in to make those label claims. Um, I'm aware of a grass finished lake label in Colorado. And all they use for this grass finished beef is retired roping steers. And people think they're getting this super high quality, blah, blah, blah. If they knew the actual story, it's, it's just a marketing gimmick. Right. So if it matters, go to the source, there's people all over. And, you know, I've made this comment probably 50 times. I can't feed all of Denver. Denver's 90 miles from the range. I support all our other people in ag. I support everybody that wants to go direct to consumer. I'm happy to provide product, but I'm also happy to make recommendations in a certain region because we've all got to do this together. And we don't do it by tearing each other down. And probably the funniest thing was, uh, you know, Will went on Joe's podcast and he talked about Whole Foods and he talked about the GAP certification program. And it was about three weeks ago that, they announced on white Oak pasture social media that whole foods is no longer buying from them. Oh wow. I mean, it's nasty and and some of these big players are out there and it's, it's a huge, huge, huge amount of money. Yeah. It is driven quite frankly by a lot of public impression that may not be accurate.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's, uh, goes with anything. I mean, we got to take a really hard look at what, what it is, what we're doing, what, what we're purchasing and, you know, like you said, what's driving that you know value behind it and the quality behind it? If it is, sure. Um, just labels or marketing or anything. So, guys, I hope you guys really listen to what Jeff was talking about today. It's not just agriculture, but this can apply across all channels of business. Um, and start thinking from your perspective, your business, what you have, and then from a transparency as well as you know, do I are is, are all these extra label claims super important? Do I need to have these kind of things in my business? But one of the things that Jeff really did point out is making sure utilizing data, whether you know it's data from your marketing, data from your sales, from your customers, and utilize that to actually grow and drive your business decisions, um, which is going to help uh, in the long run. So make sure you guys go back, listen to this again, take those notes, and then start applying these different things to the business that we talked about today. So Uh, Jeff, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on Making Bank. Uh, Really cool to hear your story and what you have going on and how you guys have uh, grown the the business and everything. Um, Guys, check out Colorado Craft Beef and where can they connect with you at, Jeff? Uh, We're all
1: over social media. You can reach out to me through the beef company directly. Happy to answer any questions or happy to you know really just give you a full look. And if you're in the Colorado area and you want to come by the ranch, uh, I'd wait until some of the snow melts, but uh, we have people out three or four times
2: a year. Awesome. Uh, guys, you are watching Making Bank. Get out. Be extraordinary.
0: Thank you for listening to Making Bank. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave a review, and sharing is caring. Follow Josh Felber on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram for more. You can also listen to Making Bank on Amazon Alexa, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and watch on Apple TV, Success Thinkers Network, Amazon Fire, and YouTube. When you ask people what edge compute is, you get a range of answers. Cloud compute and DevOps with devices and sensors, with semiconductors outside the data center, including connectivity, AI, and a security strategy. It's a stew of technologies that's powering our vehicles, our buildings, our factories, and more. It's also filled with fascinating people that are passionate about their tech, their story, and their world. I'm your host, Pete Bernard, and the Edge Celsius Show makes sense of what Edge Compute is, who's doing it, and how it can transform your business and you. Are you the proprietor of a business selling shaving kits, meal packs, audiobooks, or anything else of the sort?
1: Have you failed to tap the market of people who love hearing their favorite comedians talk about their boring lives? What's wrong with you? 57% of U.S. consumers listen to podcasts every month. That's a lot of ears that could be hearing about your brand. Go to podbean.com brands to learn how it do. That's podbea dot brands, and you could be the one talking instead of me.